Hello, and welcome to another episode of Campion Conversations, an informal podcast discussion of pop culture and the liberal arts. My name is Dr. Colin Dre. I'm lecturer in literature here at Campion College. In the early 1980s, the children's cartoons directed at Western audiences were mired in a slurry of repetitive mass-marketing gimmickry. I'm already editorialising here, but go with me. Shows like He-Men and the Masters of the Universe, Transformers and G.I. Joe were overtly, sometimes shamelessly, 30-minute commercials rolled out by toy companies to sell their next product line. Meanwhile, shows like Rainbow Bright and the Snorks would tell often perfunctory tales that would resolve within 20 minutes. Around the middle of the 1980s, however, an influx of anime works redubbed for Western audiences would dramatically reshape the way in which animation was perceived. Despite cartoons like Kimber the White Lion and Speed Racer having crossed over in the preceding decades, it was with the introduction of shows like the 1980s version of Astro Boy and Voltron that the distinct styles and narrative structures of anime were embraced by new audiences outside of Asia, and in a very real way, revolutionised children's entertainment in the West, cultivating an appetite for films like Akira and the works of Studio Ghibli. To reminisce about our respective introductions to the anime form in the shows The Mysterious Cities of Gold and Robotech, I'm joined today by fellow Campion College lecturer, Dr. Jeremy Bell. Hello. And thank you for sharing your thoughts with me. Now, as as I indicated, we're, we're doing something that may be appallingly niche today, talking about our own nostalgic recollections of some programs that were very important to us in our youth. But I do think it is important that it it exists on on the cusp of a a real change in in children's animation. Did you feel that at the time or looking back on it now? Well, (laughs) I feel I should start by saying as a very young child, I did watch He-Man and I must have enjoyed it a lot because I have a distinct memory of acquiring a skeletal sword. I'm um, so jealous. For what it's worth, that's almost my only very distinct recollection at all about the show or anything to do with the show. And later on, I discovered one of the anime series that you're referring to, which is The Mysterious Cities of Gold. And I would say definitely that played a much more important role in my childhood. I've got much more vivid memories of it. And I actually went to the trouble in my late 20s of acquiring the DVD set of The Mysterious Cities of Gold and re-watching it. And I've never bothered to do that with He-Man. And um, I actually, I think I did, I think I got it because a friend of mine who had grown up around the same time had also been fond of it and he let me know that it was available. He also warned me that, this is getting a bit complicated, a friend of his had re-watched it years later and... This friend had said, look, best not to rewatch it, just stick with your rose-tinted memories. Nonetheless, I went ahead and bought it, and I have to say, rose-tinted or not, my, my memories didn't lead to any disappointment. Oh, fantastic. I, um, I re-watched it, and I thought, yes, this is actually a pretty good show. And see, I guess that's what I was hoping to discuss with you today, actually, is that that movement from... Because I, I'm much the same. I, I have wonderful memories of, of watching... Shira and He-Man and I'll even throw Voltron into that mix there although it fits more in the, the anime movement but there, there are those shows like Transformers that are fun but ultimately are disposable whereas what we're talking about today are really those anime programs that transformed narrative that became beloved that you actually lived with for a while. And, exactly. You know, I mean that's that's the, the most obvious difference in a way between He-Man and Mysterious Cities. In He-Man, each episode was self-contained, mm-hmm. whereas Mysterious Cities of Gold, it was 39 episodes in total. 
and it was one continuing story from go to woe and that in itself is amazing and i i actually think it's quite sad that there's not more of that done it's obviously harder to do but i think possibly people have a notion that look how could you expect kids to concentrate for that long and i think look they will it's actually really engrossing if it's done well of course it's magical to be able to follow a story that goes on and on and on and on and to actually um, see the like characters change to grow and and aspire for things and achieve them episodes later that that was revolutionary at the time as you said usually it would be megatron coming up with some scheme that would be thwarted 25 minutes later whereas this is characters on a, a literal journey mm. seeking something out yeah exactly I should say, too, The Mysterious Seeds of Gold that I grew up with is now called Season 1 because in 2012 it was announced that there would be a series, two, maybe two, three, and four, I'm not even sure, but at any rate, new adventure series um, in the same vein were, were produced. I've watched, I think, one episode of the new series and that did disappoint me, but... Oh, really? Well... Again, I don't remember exactly why it disappointed me. One thing which is probably fairly trivial is that the voices are very different. And when you've grown up with a certain right. set of voice actors and you hear quite different voices, that's bound to be um, a bit of a strain to get yes. used to. So for those of you who haven't seen the original series, don't be put off by that remark about the new series. I, um, I'm really not in a position to comment on it. But, I mean, if we get into a bit of the detail, the, the point about the first series is that at the climax of this series the the characters discover one of the seven mysterious cities of gold and the point of the more recent series is that well they're now going on to find others the first series is set in uh, the new world as it's called in um in portuguese or spanish america in the 16th century and then i think i may be wrong about this but i think that one of the new series at least is set in china they go to find a, a city of gold somewhere in China. Hmm. Again, th that's really the most I can possibly say about the new series, and, and I won't say any more about it for today. So we, we're kind of introducing uh, shows that were important to us in our youth. For me, as much as I admired Mysterious Cities of Gold at a distance, and certainly that theme tune is inescapable. It's, it's spectacular. <laughs> yes. uh, I, I was more the Robotech kid, uh, and, and for, for people unaware of Robotech, uh, it's actually a bit of a controversial cartoon because of the way in which it was introduced to Western audiences. So unlike uh, Mysterious Cities of Gold, which was fairly faithful to the original, uh, I believe, Japanese, or it's like French-Japanese uh, production? This, yes, I, I'm not clear about the details of this. There was originally a Japanese series, which in Japan and I think it began in 1982. Then there was a French version of the same show, which I believe was only marginally different, as in you know, there were particular scenes, something would be slower or faster, there'd be you know, a frame or two right. different, and that was basically it. And then the English language series was based on the French one. Right. Uh, actually, the I think the major difference between the Japanese version and the French version was the music, actually. Oh, really? The, the music that, yes, we, we know the, and um, can't get out of our heads, yes, <laughs> comes, if I'm not mistaken, from the French version. Which would make sense. Uh, well, and see, that, I guess that's what I, I, I was saying, is that one's a fairly faithful translation over into Western audiences, whereas... Robotech had a far more, perhaps even scurrilous history in that it was 
cobbled together almost like a Frankenstein's monster out of three different original Japanese series that actually had nothing to do with one another. It was just the the company that was distributing the work in the US decided that they needed a certain amount of episodes for syndication. So they just got three different shows and crammed them together into this one monstrous uber mythos, uh, which barely hangs together. And I say that as a, a lover of Robotech. It's a mess. Like, it's a complete carnival of narratives that go nowhere. But the first third of, of the show, which is probably the most famous, was put together from a show called The Super Dimension Fortress Macross. Uh, and the Macross series is, it continues to be incredibly popular and beloved in Japan. Uh, Robotech was fairly faithful, but took out a lot of the more adult subject matter, uh, but still retained enough to just blow a child's mind and this was my experience was watching it much as you described with mysterious cities of gold that idea of trusting the audience a child audience to follow a narrative that would go for i think about 30 episodes um 30 something episodes where there was a galactic war going on the story was that aliens had attacked earth there was actually the implied backstory was that I think the Earth's population was almost wiped out. Uh, and, and that was just in a kid's cartoon. But there was also uh, a love triangle kind of in the center of it, a fairly chaste love triangle. One of the points of that triangle was the excruciatingly annoying Lin Min May, but whatever. There was a, a triangle in the middle of it. There was galactic warfare. People, there were stakes that people actually died. It was... Uh, far more substantive, substantial, and moving than than you would see on any of the other material that seemed to be on air at that moment. And it seemed like a huge progression in the way that you would watch a show or, or that as a child you would interact with a narrative of that kind. Did you find with Mysterious Cities of Gold that you were aware of that sort of upending of your expectation when you were watching it? Or is it more just you just enjoyed the experience and then looked back on it later and realised that, wow, that was unlike anything else at the time what i said uh, at the outset i think is right that I, I simply have much more vivid memories of it than i do of, of other shows of other cartoons i should say that i watched I, I i think i mean children of a certain age don't really have expectations they just take whatever they get um whatever's given to them i should say i guess what i'm asking though is and poorly but what i'm wondering is i i really had a, a sense even as a child that what i was watching was aimed at a different level of viewership. There was, again, I adored He-Man and, and Transformers and all of those things, but there was a sense in which the, the pat kind of cheap way that they would tie themselves up at the end, excluding, of course, Optimus Prime being brutally murdered in the Transformers movie. Forget that for a second. But in the television series, there was a, a sense, even if you weren't aware of the fact that they were just trying to sell you toys... There was a sense that you knew the narrative wasn't going to go anywhere, whereas in these other shows, I'd throw Astro Boy into the mix there and even Battle of the Planets, things like that. There, there was a sense in which they were trusting you with a longer narrative and they were not afraid to actually throw in some complicated emotional material too. That not, not anything that's going to savagely mess you up but uh it, it, it had a kind of a depth they were willing to explore things like melancholy and and sorrow and loss and failure in in ways that you would never get in the more sort of western sure. it, is that true of mysterious cities or not really oh absolutely i mean 
you have three children in the Mysteries of Gold, and one of them, I mean, two boys and a girl, so... Esteban is one of Exactly. Them? Esteban's the main character. Actually, the original Japanese title, I understand, was Esteban, the Child of the Sun. It became the Mysterious Hits of Gold in French and then in English. Now, Esteban, to begin with, is supposed to be, well, question mark, an orphan. It's not entirely clear, but at any rate, he and his father were at sea in a terrible storm. He was rescued as a baby and... It seems that his father likely drowned, although it's not clear. So that's that's his starting point. And then Zia, the girl, she is an Incan princess, actually. Kidnapped, I think, at the age of seven, I want to say. It might have been younger, by Spaniards and brought back to Spain, who is in search of her father. That's her big thing in the story. And eventually she finds him and he dies, I think, later on that same episode. And then the third boy, who's a bit older, Tao, he is from a, a mythical or quasi-mythical people. Um, again, in English and French, this came over as the Heaver people, I believe. The much more usual name is the Moo people. So, yes, you have two, possibly three orphan children, um, kidnapping, death of parents and all the rest of it. Um, yeah, Colonialisation. No, exactly. No, no holds barred. So, yes, it's certainly very powerful stuff. I mean, back to your question, I don't have any recollection of, of thinking about the show as a show in the way that you were describing, thinking this is pitched at a higher level or something like that. I just I just remember finding it much more captivating than anything else. The I will just throw in there the animation that I've seen, sumptuous. Like, it just looked beautiful. The, 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 oh, yes. Sort of, the, the new world that's being discovered that they are working within just looks lovely. Even, even, even though it's, what, 30, 40 years old at this point, mm. it's just gorgeous. It is. I mean, it's, I suppose, you know, for people who have grown up with um, computer animation and, and some of the more recent Hollywood animation, it, it looks a bit, I don't know what the right word is, um, simple. Mm. Uh, aspects of it do. But of course, well, in the first place, as a child, that sort of thing doesn't register with you anyway. Um, not unless your taste's already been spoiled. <laughs> but also, I, it's it's not the important thing. I mean, the important thing is the story, the characters, the dialogue. And also, as we've already said, the music. It's got such terrific music. Not only the opening theme, it's got really good incidental music. And and yeah, and it is. it really is quite magical. I do have vague but vivid, if that's not a contradiction in terms, vague but vivid uh, memories of dreaming about the show, of dreaming about being in the situation of the characters in the show. Oh, I can um, imagine, yeah. <laughs> No, truly. <laughs> yes. I, and it's mm. it's a show that I only dipped in and out of. But again, that, that, that sense of adventure, of, of actually seeking out a new world, and then as the story progressed, please um, forgive me if I'm, I'm wrong in this, but I believe then there's a whole sci-fi kind of element that comes into it as yes, well so it's, i right. mean it just seems like this wondrously exponentially expansive narrative that you're invited to go on you begin meeting this one kid esteban who then meets other people over some time if i recall correctly i don't think you meet zia and tau for a number of episodes you certainly meet zia in the second episode possibly okay. not the first i mean it starts in in spain i remember the the boat ride exactly being like the two boat or three ride. episodes it, oh no it's very it, i mean that again is is part of what's so wonderful about it it takes its time there's no mm. sense of rushing i remember when i was watching it as an adult my mother watched some of it with me most of it actually and she commented i think during the boat sequence it's so wonderfully slow. Yeah. That was her remark. And it is. There's, yes, but when you're used to the snappy 
dialogue and pacing and constant stimulation of, of contemporary shows. It's a real pleasure to watch something that moves slowly. Mm. And, and again, I mean, it actually respects its its audience. Like, I see that uh, as, as opposed to being some failure for not living up to some hyperkinetic, seizure-inducing, action-spectacular thing that you could get on another channel, this was one that actually let you linger with the characters and, mm. and take your time on the adventure. The other, I mean, talking about those early episodes on the ship, one reason why they spin that out over several episodes is because a major event, if you like, in that sequence is negotiating the Straits of Magellan. And I haven't checked this, but I assume this is historically accurate because they make quite a point of it. One of the other main characters is called Mendoza, a Spaniard. Actually, one of the people responsible originally for kidnapping Zia. But anyway, he is the navigator on the ship, and he has to stay awake for, I think it's at least 48 hours straight, might even be longer, I don't remember, in order to negotiate these straits. It was a special skill that sailors had. If you didn't have someone who knew exactly how to get through these treacherous waters, then the ship would be destroyed. And of course, staying awake for 48 hours and having that burden on you is is an extraordinary thing. And, And the show really does convey this to the audience quite vividly. I mean, you... You see the straits, you see the thunderstorms, you see you know, the danger and the risk and all the rest of it. And I think that that actually might stretch over more than one episode, although I could be wrong. So, yeah, uh, and that's another thing which we have to talk about, the the historical education it gives you. Yes. Um, Again, I mean, respecting the audience, too. Yeah, actually. I mean, there's a fair amount of <laughs> fantastical stuff in there, of course. A it, giant... Flying gold eagle, if I remember. Well, indeed, and a a race of people living under a mountain who have apparently become deformed after a nuclear war. It all gets a bit surreal. (laughs) But but still, there's a lot of real straight history in there. And at the end of each episode, I think this was the case in the original Japanese and French as well, at the end of each episode there's a short, strictly historical postlude, if you like, Mm. where instead of animation they actually show footage of parts of South or Central America or the Galapagos, which is where one one or two episodes take place and they have a a narrator who tells the story. Also, within the animation, I mean, one of the characters in around episode, I don't know, six or seven, is none other than Governor Francisco Pizarro. I mean, I suppose in in Australia, it it perhaps means a little less to us as children that is growing up, but I I can imagine for an American audience, or even a Canadian audience, I think they were Canadian voice actors who did the dubbing, having this fairly unflattering picture of the Spanish conquistadors in, in the midst of the story would certainly be an important part of your education yeah. into the history of your own continent, or a nearby continent anyway. No, absolutely. I, I think that is what I really admire about these cartoons, and perhaps it's by virtue of them coming from a culture that wasn't just engineering them purely for you know, a, um, Coca-Cola and Cocoa Pop-fueled child mind. They, they were geared more towards a family audience. Maybe it's just by virtue of that that they, they have more content and substance to them. But as opposed to something like Transformers, where it's all Starscream, get the power conduit, and they sort of shoot lasers at one another for five hours. Uh, here, it, it's actually about, as you said, like dealing with substantive issues and actually acknowledging, if not thoroughly embracing, but at least acknowledging historical fact and incorporating it into the story. Having, having again, that trust in the audience that you will actually allow them to invest in a narrative that's not instantaneously gratifying in a way that they're probably engineered to expect from a cartoon. Indeed. Connected with that too, going back to the character of Mendoza, he's in some ways the most interesting figure in the whole story because 
he's a Spaniard, and as I've mentioned, he's one of the kidnappers of Zia originally, and he makes sure that she comes along on the return, on the ship going back to the New World from Spain, because she can read what are called kipus. They're messages written in in knots, in in ropes. Is that a real thing? I haven't double-checked, but I would imagine so. In fact, I'm pretty sure it is. I seem to recall one of the postlude real history segments talking about them. Um, And the reason he wants Zia along in order to read this is because he's hoping that these will lead them to the cities of gold. Anyway, but what I wanted to say was Mendoza, from the outset, seems to be intent on nothing but the gold. That really does seem to be his only interest. And at the same time, he seems to have a genuine affection for the children who, as things turn out, are under his care, all three of them. Zia is very mistrustful of him. I, th- I think at one point, actually, she says, look, Spaniards only care about gold, and that's true of Mendoza. But, yeah, there is this ambiguity throughout, really, I'd say the first two-thirds of the series about, look, does Mendoza really care, or is he a cold-blooded Spaniard just after gold? Would he ditch the children at the first opportunity if he didn't need them anymore? Because he does unquestionably need them um, in the earlier episodes. I mean, he needs Zia, as I've said, for interpretative reasons. And the reason why he needs Esteban is a bit hard to explain, but he does. But still, there comes a point, and in fact it's right after the death of Zia's father, where there's a moment of revelation about Mendoza, where he actually has the opportunity to simply make off with his two other Spanish friends, take gold and forget about anyone else. And he says, no, I'm not going to do it. In fact, he punches the other two when they suggest it. And that's when you think, right, no, he's actually a kind of goody, or at least he's got his good side. (laughs) But it does, it takes that long for that to come out, at least in an unambiguous way. That's great. And and again, that's another thing that I really respect about it, because you're not going to have that episode in the 80s version of He-Man where Skeletor shows more emotional (laughs) complexity than... It would ruin the show if he did. Exactly. (laughs) Uh, Whereas, uh, again, that's one of the things that I adored so much about Robotech to go back to Robotech momentarily it's a show about galactic war there are aliens and there are humans but uh, one of the delightful things about the show is that eventually you realize the uh the evil invading aliens who I want to call the Zentradi I believe that's correct the Zentradi have more nuance and complexity to them than you believe at first, or that the, the humans are led to believe. And so there are Zentradi defectors, and the Zentradi learn to actually regard humanity in a way that clearly they didn't when they attacked them and annihilated them in the first place. And again, just that a show geared towards children, um, at least in its Western presentation, would not only allow for, but bake into its narrative that idea of re-examining prejudice and conflict and uh, warfare uh, it was mind-blowing. Like, it, it was just the, the fact that you would begin with this kind of maniacal, moustache-twirling evil villains and by the end of it learn to actually acknowledge them as, I don't think it's too much of a spoiler to say, by the end, allies, is quite extraordinary and, and not something that, any other series was really capable of playing out at least not in a convincing way but by virtue of that long-form narrative in which you're spending literally years with the characters over the the course of the narrative that gets told it is capable of producing those kind of changes and evolution in in thinking again just something i'd never seen as a child and that's even before you get to uh, probably the most transformative moment that i felt in the narrative which was the death 
you mentioned Zia's father mm. died. Uh, Robotech, for anybody who's watched it, has a very profound death. It's I think it's around the midpoint. It's 30 years old, so I'm going to presume that spoilers are, are okay here. Uh, there's a character called Roy, who's a fighter pilot. He's very beloved. Everybody respects him, highly regards him. He heads out to, to fight in uh, one dogfight and dies. He, he gets shot, foolishly, I guess, doesn't get medical treatment, comes home and dies. And again, to my, I think at that, that point, like eight-year-old mind, that was mind-blowing. Because again, in G.I. Joe... A plane blows up, somebody just parachutes out the back, they're fine. You see them next episode, all is good. Uh, in this, it was a central character, beloved by the primary protagonist of, of the show. We've already seen him in a committed, loving relationship, and his, I can't remember if it's wife or fiance will grieve him the remainder of the series. They will have trouble dealing with his absence as a, a fighter pilot and the, the people raising in the ranks to try and fill his position. That's something that the show will grapple with going onward. That idea of a show, a cartoon, no less, acknowledging death and, and mortality and actually the, the struggle that the characters around him have to go through was something that just never experienced in an animation before, in a children's animation. And it was astonishing. Again, it sounds like I'm really overselling it, and I probably am, but at the time, it was just something... I couldn't fathom that he wouldn't be there in the next episode. It just seemed so uh, extraordinary that a show would do that. Not, not like some secondary character that you just met two episodes ago, but this was a guy who was right there from the beginning, and he's just not going to be there anymore. Mm. And, and again, uh, probably the bravest component of it was it wasn't like it was a season finale. It wasn't like it was some big battle where somebody had to sacrifice themselves to save everyone else. It was just a dogfight and he died and that was it. So raised the stakes for the whole rest of the series in a way that I can't imagine ever happening in another show, except for perhaps the traumatic uh, Transformers movie, which I mentioned earlier, <laughs> where you watch Optimus Prime get savagely beaten to death so that they could sell some more toys in the next round of, of product line. So uh, obviously that was a new emotion that I was experiencing. Were there other emotions that you felt in Mysterious Cities of Gold that you hadn't really felt in other shows? Hmm. I want to say yes, but it's hard to know how to put it. I've talked about the magical quality of it, and I suppose it's necessary to say that there's a certain element of what seems like actual magic in the show... I mentioned the title in Japanese, Esteban, The Child of the Sun. He's called that as well in the French and English versions, referred to constantly as The Child of the Sun. And for reasons that I don't think are ever quite made clear, I don't know what it would look like to make them clear anyway, if the sun is behind a cloud, if it's raining, whatever, and if Esteban is brought out, or if he prays, the sun will come out. And on, I think, several occasions, this actually saves the lives of other characters for different reasons. This this is why Mendoza keeps him on hand, because you don't get the impression that Mendoza is a superstitious man, but still, he's seen the evidence of his eyes, he knows that however this works, this child is somehow able to bring the sun out. So, Am I misremembering, does that happen in one of the first episodes when they're on the boat? Is there a storm? It, yes, and... it does, that's okay. right, yes. I, I th mm. sort of had a vague recollection of that, okay. Yeah. Now, it, it's a strange conceit. I, I think part of the... I mean, just to digress slightly for a moment, part of the point of that in the context of the show is that Esteban 
like so many main characters, is is um, is not meant to be too gifted, if you like. Um, no, no, I, I, I yeah, don't mean yeah. that in a bad way, but yes, in a way, like Harry Potter with Ron and Hermione. Well, maybe not so much Ron, but with Hermione. One of the one of the friends, who's also a major character, but not the central character, is actually more talented, more gifted than the main character. And in this case, Zia and Tao, in in different ways, tend to be cleverer and more adept at getting out of trouble situations than Esteban. And in fact, Esteban is sometimes impulsive and, and gets them into scrapes that they might otherwise have avoided, which, of course, you know, it's very important. Watching it as a child, you can then identify with Esteban mm. um, without any difficulty. <laughs> but but still, he's got to have something going for him. And, you know, like Harry's you know, being the boy who lived and having the scar and this strange power of visiting Voldemort, which is not of his doing... Esteban has this mysterious connection with the sun. So, but coming back to your question, yes, emotions, reactions that I didn't have with other shows. Yes, the the sense of this being a whole magical world of adventure and discovery and danger. I I can't think of any other TV show or film, for that matter, I watched that that gave me the same sort of experience. I I think one simple reason of that is because so much of it takes place out out of cities. Mm. It's not... You know, it's. I mean, for a start, it's set in the 16th century, so even when you are in cities, it's fairly primitive by and large. But yes, the fact that so much of this travelling down rivers or through forests or underground or flying overground, um, I think that's actually really important. It, it 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 contributes to the sense of you know wild adventure and you know escaping from everything that you're familiar with. I mean, mm. you know, growing up in a place. I mean, I grew up in Strathfield, went to a school in Strathfield, and so yes, for an urban kid like me I, I think i think that on its own actually made a big difference as yeah. well dynamism of location every episode slightly different in yes and, in and, and the sense of sort of in, endless vistas of exciting and frightening and, and amazing um mm. natural discoveries to make which and, given the subject matter you know entering into a new world mm. colonializing force to, to take on a negative connotation but that excitement of the new the the untrammeled mm. at least by uh, these new eyes looking upon it. Um, That's right. But at the same time, I think mainly because of this strange little gimmick, if you like, of Esteban's about the sun, the the suggestion all the way through that there's something, you know, there's something magical, something supernatural, maybe not quite the right word to use, going on here too. I mean, I, I might expand on that a bit. Um, both Esteban and Zia have medallions which, again, have some connection to the sun. It's not quite clear what. And throughout the series, you know, it's obvious that the Manalians have some connection. They're identical. They both have them. They don't know where they got them from. Um, they don't know what they're for. It turns out in the, at the very end that they're actually to open the gates of the city of gold that they find. But setting that aside, once again, the connection with the sun, the fact that these two children... You know, who had nothing to do with each other, nonetheless end up travelling together and they both had these medallions. Why? I think, not that kids analyse this, but the sense that there's some providence, if you like, watching over them and guiding the story, a sun god or something <laughs> like that, that too you know, really heightens the, what I'm calling, for the better word, the magic of the series. As an aside, what you were describing then reminds me a lot of Avatar, The Last Airbender. Did you ever happen to watch it? Oh, it's wonderful. Highly influenced by shows like Mysterious Cities of Gold, but that same quality of, of journey and exploration and of being in new, exciting lands. And even actually your description of the three main 
characters actually reminds me of Ang and Katara and Soka, who Katara arguably has the most power. Anyway, uh, I'm off topic there, but a fantastic show, which I think you would love if you want to <laughs> subject your children to it in the, in the years to come. Well, I, I do think those new emotional journeys was what drew me to a number of other anime shows of the time. I mentioned earlier on Astro Boy. Did you ever see any... I did, but it's one of those things that you know, the title's instantly familiar. I, I suppose I must have watched it at some point as a child. I've got literally no memory of the details of the show. Most people, when you say Astro Boy, remember, oh yeah, he's got machine guns in his butt, which is true. Uh, but f- for me, again, it was the the melancholy of that show was what really struck me. It's a, about a self-aware child robot who is built because his creator loses his son. His son dies in a, I believe it's a car accident. And so he attempts to rebuild a replacement son, effectively, uh, and is too horrified by his creation that he abandons him. And so it's the, this robot boy, Astro Boy, mm. is seeking to understand himself. He's seeking to, to help people. And there's also that quality of robots are people too. That becomes a, a big component of the story that sentient robotic life should be treated with regard. Um, but again, the, the whole show, despite having big action set pieces that were a lot of fun to watch, the whole show is permeated with this this, this sorrow that I think stems right from the beginning that you know astro boy was created out of an act of uh, incalculable grief and so it, it went on to define the, the narrative that would play out afterwards and again i, I remember just adoring that that, that, that there was a, a show that had that kind of compl- emotional complexity i guess i should say because uh, narratively it wasn't that overwhelmingly dense but that that it respected again the complications of emotion that can arise in in a story like that and and didn't seek to diminish them or or undermine them but actually build them into the narrative so that was another one that uh, i i love Uh, i don't want this to descend into me just firing names at you but (laughs) did you happen to see the wonderful wizard of oz Mm, i don't think so that was a bit more obscure but uh, that was another that i loved it's a fairly faithful retelling Mm. actually of i think the first four or five books of the l frank bomb oz oz books it's actually got i think from memory it's it probably is the most faithful retelling of the first oz book the wizard of oz no ruby slippers they respect the hierarchy of the witches in a way that the the other sort of versions of the story usually kind of squash them all together but that one i i, I adored because it also had that sort of sense of, of journey and wandering and actually gave you the opportunity to play out the, the characters of the scarecrow and, and the lion in a way that becomes very cartoony and brief in any other adaptation of the work were there other shows that you well the only other one that isn't anyway like the mysterious cities and, and it may even have been the same or a similar production team i don't know um the twins of destiny i never saw that i don't even know no, that my memories of that are much less distinct i'm pretty sure that was set in china and obviously you know the main characters you know boy and a girl twins why they were called the twins of destiny i don't know <laughs> but um th- that was also you know a continuing story uh, uh, yeah and i think i'm pretty sure that came after mysterious cities the same sort of overarching narrative that that went for some time yeah i'm pretty sure great Mm. so obviously i've been positioning these texts as very transformative or evolutionary 
in the, in the progression of children's entertainment. But in a real sense, I mean, th- these are years before The Simpsons and South Park would turn up and actually legitimize animation for adult audiences mm. in a way. Um, do you see these these shows like Mysterious Cities and Robotech and even the Twins of Destiny, uh, do you see these as contributing to that movement towards more adult animation or is more well, adult... Oh, wait. Adult animation sounds bad. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> so, uh, more mm. animation aimed at adults? I haven't thought about it. Maybe, but I wouldn't really think so. I mean, certainly not when I think about The Simpsons and South Park, but of both of which I should say I'm very fond. Mm. I mean, The Simpsons, of course, is a is a sort of, at one level anyway, it's a kind of spoof of you know, sitcoms. Yeah, um, true. You know, centred around a happy family. I mean, one reason I think it works so well is because there is actually a genuine, somewhat dysfunctional, but at the end of the day, reasonably happy and centred family in The Simpsons. South Park is, I would say, in a class all of its own. I mean, that's a whole, <laughs> whole different ballpark. Well, no, but that, that, that's one thing I'd say. I mean, both both of those shows, as you say, that they're directed primarily to adults, but they're they are both. Oh, it's an overused word, but they, yeah, they're both satire. Or, or, or you know, there's a large satirical element to them. I mean, they're essentially satirical. That's they raise on debt anyway. Whereas Mysterious Cities, there's nothing of that. It's one, again, it is actually one reason why it's so refreshing. I mean, there's there's comedy in it, but it's it's quite by our standards quite naive comedy. I mean, some of it's literally things like you know, slipping on a banana peel or things, <laughs> the Central American equivalent of that. But um, but the um, I think the the compulsion that scriptwriters nowadays so often seem to feel to to undercut moments of seriousness with humour immediately afterwards, which which I actually detest. I think it's a terrible thing, but there, there's none of that. It's a completely straight-laced show um, mm. in that way. And so, yeah, w- which is why I yeah I don't really straight away see any sort of connection between that and, um, and The Simpsons and South Park. But I yeah, guess... that's just a first thought. No, no, of course. I, I guess my question's more, uh, which I posed poorly, but is... That sense of maybe legitimizing the art form in a way that, uh, again, uh, looked at cynically, but I don't think unfairly, uh, a lot of animation in the 80s for Western audiences, I should say, were commercials. And even even some of the material that was uh, shipped in and redubbed from Japan was used to sell commercials. I, I mentioned Voltron earlier on, and whatever it was designed to do in, in Japan they were trying to ship you those lion toys when when it came to America and Europe. So it feels like, and and maybe I'm just overreaching, but it it feels like with the advent of shows like uh, Mysterious Cities of Gold, which wasn't trying to sell you the new Esteban toy, uh, it was just a narrative that was being told to, to children and to a lesser degree... Robotech, because there was a toy line <laughs> bound to that. It seemed like these shows were stepping stones towards legitimizing animation as a narrative form as opposed to just toy commercial. You know, from here we got a longer form anime that, that was carried over in relatively faithful versions from Japan to the, the advent of... Uh, Studio Ghibli films that were being actually watched in cinemas and appreciated to things like Akira to things like um, Neon Genesis Evangelon, which I didn't watch, but um, I saw a tiny bit of that. Yes. Looked mm. crazy, but but I mean, and uh, then Dragon Ball and Dragon Ball Z and and all of these shows that then 
were aimed at you know maybe teenage uh, audience and then slightly higher until finally we we just have now through things like Crunchyroll and Cartoon Network faithful presentations of these anime just redubbed into our language and a lot of people who skip that and just go for the original Japanese with subtitles it seems like that progression towards accepting what in Japan was already a thoroughly established artistic medium seemed to stem from these shows that we're talking about today or is that that could be true i mean you you know more about it than i do again my, my reaction to your question was was really just at the level of well theme wise content wise spirit wise mm. I mean, does there seem to be any affinity and i i wouldn't have said so but but in other ways yes you may well be right by the way talking of animation um, directed as much as uh, as much at adults as at children. I can't remember if we've ever talked about this show, but a, another show from my childhood, the only other animation from my childhood that I've ever revisited and enjoyed is Duckula. Oh, man. I love Duckula. Yeah, no, it's a marvellous show. <laughs> <laughs> totally Have we talked different. about this before? I, I don't know. Oh, I don't I Well, possibly Duckula. not, but again, totally different from Mysterious Seasons of Gold. And this totally, is a UK production. Exactly, yeah. yes, and totally different from The Simpsons, on the other hand. Once again, I, I, I want to say in its own class, really. But A vegetarian duck vampire. No, really quite charming and very funny. And and yes, certainly, direct, I mean, I enjoyed it as a child, I obviously did, and then re-watching it years later, it's very clear, so much of the humour would just go over the head of um, the plenty of children. I, and I don't mean what we would call adult humour, but just yeah, no, you know, wit and wordplay and things like that. Um, sort of in that vein of Danger Mouse, but even slightly more self-aware. And... I'm told it was a spin-off of Danger Mouse. Oh, really? Oh, well, that yes. makes sense then. But the same did... voice actor, wasn't it? No, no, it wasn't. Um, no. or, well, or at least if it was, he did the voice quite differently. Right. Um, I, I think I think in Danger Mouse, the character of Duckula had a lisp, for instance, and right. the one in Duckula actually doesn't. The 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 actor, the voice actor who did Duckula is David Jason, who oh dear, this is really going to date me. Did the voice of the stop motion Wind in the Willows Toad of Toad Hall? Oh wow! He's uh, this is the actor from Only Fools and Horses. Yes, and, yes. that's right. And. Um, innumerable other British <laughs> shows that escape me right now. Anyway, that was <laughs> something of a digression, perhaps, but yes, it's on this general topic of you know, evolution of cartoons and aiming at adults as well. It just occurred to me. It's the, the one thing that I can really contribute that I recall. I cannot allow this discussion to end without imploring you again to watch Avatar The Last Airbender, which, <laughs> honestly, is phenomenal. And if Mysterious Cities of Gold is, is that baked into your DNA, uh, you will instantaneously fall in love with it. I think it's, it's an exquisite show. And again, characters that evolve and change over time, that sense of adventure, while also having... Like, wondrous magical qualities to its to its action and adventure it's fantastic i can't encourage people enough uh steer thoroughly clear of the m night Shyamalan uh, live action version of that story though and unless you really really want to laugh while also wiping tears out of your eyes that this is what they did to the beloved property that you cared so much about any any other final comments or memories or things that we want to no not not offhand those of you who 
haven't seen the mysterious hits of gold, I certainly recommend it. And with my wife's permission, I'm certainly going to try to bring up our child or our children. Oh yes, it. indoctrinating the new the new <laughs> generations. I have started that with my own children. Not so much with Robotech, but uh, Astro Boy's gotten a whirl already. Mm. Uh, and uh, yes. Avatar The Last Airbender is sitting there in a pile just waiting to be pushed <laughs> upon them. Uh, well, those were the cartoons that helped shape our respective youths. What beloved series did you grow up with? What children's program still burns a special nostalgic flame in your heart? If you enjoyed this podcast, then please do subscribe. We have new episodes every other week. And if you like what we're doing here, please do give us a review on iTunes. Those five-star reviews really do help. If you'd like to comment on anything that you've heard or offer feedback, please do drop us a line. I want to thank Dr. Jeremy Bell for joining me today. My pleasure. Absolutely wonderful to have you. And we will be back next time with another Campion Conversation. I hope that you can join us then. This episode of Campion Conversations brought to you by another thrilling evolution in postal technology. Do you have a letter that you want to send quickly and conveniently? Well, don't waste time standing in line at the post office. Try the Electronical Mail Delivery Service. Using our patented EMD technology, patent pending, we'll take your written letters and methodically type them into a computer turning them into an electronic post message or electro letter. This message will then be sent through a series of tubes through the worldwide network to one of our local branches, where one of our dedicated operatives will print your message out on only the finest fax paper, that is if Danny's remembered to refill the spool, and deliver it to a mailbox of your choosing. The whole process takes only 5 to 12 business days and has a customer satisfaction rating at almost 33%. That's the Electronical Mail Delivery Service. From the makers of the mobile landline phone locator app. The future of the past, today. Campion Conversations is a production of Campion College of the Liberal Arts, Australia.